today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. There was a really interesting piece in the Hamilton Spectator today by Andrew Dreschel. Headline was, don't expect equal coverage for Hamilton's mayoral candidates. Well, of course, this is going to make a number of the 15 people who have registered to run for mayor blanch or maybe more. There may have been a couple heads that popped off and spun around a few times today. But essentially, what Andrew wrote, and it is a real interesting position to take, what he wrote is, not all candidates running for mayor here or in any other city are serious contenders. And if the media, the radio, TV, newspaper, even the internet, gets bogged down with all the minutia with the pretenders and the those who really don't have any real chance of becoming mayor of the city, getting tied down with that doesn't help voters understand the issues, doesn't help voters sort out who is the person that they should be voting for. So to be a public service, which the media is supposed to be, The ones who are the serious candidates are the ones who are going to get attention. Here's what Andrew wrote. Here's a line from that. But the stony truth is that doesn't make them, and this is many of the 15, that doesn't make them equally worthy of challengers. Sorry, but the stony truth is that doesn't remotely make them equally worthy challengers. It's not enough that someone wants to be mayor. To be given serious consideration, they have to work for it. They have to merit respect and recognition. They have to earn people's votes. Well, what do you think about that concept? I want to bring in someone who I know will have some thoughts on it. He is a former mayoral candidate. He is also a former mayor. He has won elections. He has lost elections. He has been down this path before as a serious candidate and facing people who were both serious and less serious. His name is Larry Deany. He joins me now, sir. Thanks for doing this tonight. Hey, did you have to remind me that I've also lost elections? Well, you know, we've all won some things and lost some things, right, Larry? Um, what Andrew says, what Andrew yeah. says in this, when he says that not every mayoral candidate is equal, not all should be treated equally. Is that fair? Uh, well, I don't know if it's fair, but it's it's certainly true. Let's put it that way. It, it is true that, uh, you know, uh, all you have to do is pay a couple hundred bucks, I think, uh, to register yourself. And have no <clears throat> no redeeming quality whatsoever, necessarily, um, other than wanting to get your name in the newspaper, and therefore um, you sign up uh, for a political position. And the mayoralty attracts a lot of people, and so I think we've got a lot of people running this time. Uh, not all of whom are serious. In fact, some of whom are parodies. I remember when I ran, there was a fellow from Dundas. In fact who ran a parody campaign and he would sing songs and he would uh, and he would make jokes and and uh, he didn't have any uh, any notion uh, of uh, or hope of, of even attracting a few votes but he wanted to get his name out there and have some fun and that's allowed but that doesn't mean though that as we try to ferret out what the serious issues are and who we want to be leading the city to meet some of the challenges that we've got. That doesn't mean that the media has to cater everybody who puts his name on the ballot. As Andrew said, and I agree with him, they have to earn that right by presenting bold ideas, by organizing in a way that attracts attention, by raising money that allows them to spend some money on a serious campaign, and all of the things that make good campaigns. So it, it doesn't sound 
democratic to say, um, you know, not not all candidates are deserving candidates, um, but it's the harsh uh, political reality. What is what yeah. about the idea, Larry, that some will say then? Because you, I mean, you talk about a joke candidate, but these people, I'm sure, who are running this year would not identify them that way. What about those who say, look? we are saying you have to earn votes and earn respect, but if I can't get attention, how am I supposed to earn that respect? Well, and, and that is the other side of that coin, right? That's the conundrum. Uh, but, but, but let me, let me tell you though, that you earn respect by having a track record, uh, by uh, having been involved in, uh, uh debates and maybe, uh, since this is the chief magistrate who runs a couple of, you know, a budget that's a couple of billion dollars uh, uh, hefty. Um, it needs to have some experience politically uh, and would be able to manage that, that charge that the voters might give him. And so if you've got all of those qualifications, believe me, you're going to be taken seriously. But if you're just a guy who wants to get his name in the paper and have some fun for a few weeks and do it at the cheap cost of a couple of hundred dollars, then you have the right to run. And so I want to make that distinction. And Larry, when you were running for mayor, actually before you ran for mayor, because we've been talking about becoming a serious candidate, before you even ran for mayor, when you ran for council, how did you make yourself a serious candidate? What was the difference between you as a serious candidate and someone else who wouldn't have been considered a serious candidate? Well, so, you know, this is ancient history now, but when I first ran in, in Stony Creek, um, I was running and it was an open ward. There wasn't a, an incumbent there. And there were seven or eight of us who ran. And so each of us had the same opportunity uh, to, to win that particular time. Nobody knew me. I was absolutely brand new. I didn't quite know myself in terms of a, a political sense um, because I, I was new to the, uh, to the whole experience. But I did what uh, I studied what successful campaigns do. And what they do is they look at themselves and they ask themselves, uh, the candidates at least they do, what are my assets and how am I going to communicate that to people? What do I think this community needs and what's my platform going to be and how do I communicate that to people? Can I get some people to help me knock on doors, deliver signs, put up signs, uh, deliver brochures, put up signs? Uh, and uh, I called a group of friends who thought it was a good idea uh, and they would help me uh, and then we just slugged it up. We went to debates and we went door to door presented myself and my ideas. But if there had been, but Larry, if there had been an incumbent there that you were running against, you had an open ward, but if there had been an incumbent would you, do you think that you would have at that time, because this is the big question here about who do we take seriously, would you have been taken seriously as a serious candidate? And I guess that's what we're trying to find. What's the criteria that would separate the serious candidates worthy of our attention from the not serious candidates? Well, and so, uh, and, and that's a great question, because if it had been an incumbent, perhaps I wouldn't have uh, run, you know. I, I might have assessed my chances not to be so great on it. run. Although I had the political bug in me, and, and I might have done so as well, and I might have won, I might not have won, but I also started at the entry point for municipal politics, which is the local councillor. I didn't run for mayor, and so some of these people that are running right now, you know, I, and I, I hate to, to sound as if I'm being elitist about this, but they have no business 
running for the top job. Perhaps if they're really interested in supporting the community and having their voice heard, they should run for the local job, and that is the ward councillor, and then work they, you know, once they acquired some experience and they know what the system is like, uh, they would perhaps challenge at the other level. Um, you know, there are some people, you don't want to mention, you know, who the serious candidates are and who they're not, and I'm certainly not going to get into that, but there are some people who have a one-issue political agenda that have put their names on the ballot. Some are quite controversial in that respect. They only want to make some waves so that they can get their agenda on the front pages of the spectator. Now, the spectator or, or the community papers or the TV station, they don't, they don't, their mandate is not to promote that individual's singular agenda. Now, that individual or those individuals may get themselves on the front page by what they do, what they say, how they present themselves, are they able to attract? And I'll give you another a quick anecdote, Scott. Um, when I ran in 2010 and was the election, one of the elections that I did lose, uh, there was a candidate uh, who was funny. He used to tell stories about his, his donkey falling off a bridge because it was eating wild marijuana. And, I mean, he was just funny. He made people laugh. This is your laughing. Andrew Dreschel, speaking of him, wrote about that in his column. He wrote about it, not because he was serious enough to be elected mayor. He never was, obviously. But he told a funny story, and he weaved it into his narrative. So, again, if, if any of these so-called fringe candidates, uh, who are citizens and have every right to put their name on the ballot, want to attract attention, they have to come up with a novel, novel way of doing that. <laughs> yeah, so, so if you're not... If you're not going to be totally serious, if you're not going to be totally credible as a mayoral candidate, at least be entertaining. At least. <laughs> and even the parody candidate, the, the election that I won, uh, was entertaining. He, in fact, he sang me a song uh, the night of the election. <laughs> you know, it, 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 it's so, so, do you remember the, uh, uh, you know, the party, the, the, the party that wanted to, I can't even remember their names, uh, the, the rhinoceros Yes, the party, rhinoceros party, yeah. Right? And so if you inject a little bit of levity uh, into a campaign, uh, that's always good. Uh, everybody enjoys a laugh. On the other hand, especially since, since the time frame is short, relatively speaking, and, this, and the issues are serious, you don't want to spend a lot of time on frivolous people yeah. or frivolous ideas. You want to give voters substance so then they can make an intelligent decision. Former Mayor Larry DeAnne, always appreciate you taking some time for us tonight. Thank you for doing this. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. If you are listening, right, if you're in your car right now, I would, I would, I would say put down your phone. Don't be texting. Don't be talking on. I mean, that should be your regular pattern by now, but especially for our next segment. I mean, just out of point of principle for the next segment, put your phone down because I want to bring in Constable Norm Deneau. He's a Halton Region cop. He works out of Burlington. Uh, Just a few weeks ago, he gave out his 5,000th ticket for distracted driving. 5,000 tickets for distracted driving, which I think is a lot. (laughs) I, I think, uh, Constable Deneau, I think that's a lot, isn't it? 
Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. that's uh, it's a crazy number if you think about it. Sure. Now, I don't know whether that makes you the most heroic, most popular cop in Burlington, or if that makes you the least popular cop. I guess it's depending on which side of the uh, the ticket people are on, whether they've got one or not will determine what they think of you. Oh, that's so true. <laughs> but, but if you think about it, everybody who's had any family member injured by a distracted driver mm. or that, uh, highly regarded from that end. None of the people you've given a ticket to have offered their congratulations, though, on your milestone. Um, none, none that I have so far received any comments. This, how, how long a period is this over, these 5,000 tickets? Uh, it's been in legislation for seven years now, and uh, I started uh, immediately, not as intense as I have been the last few years, um, but it was kind of that build-up thing. And it's, but it's still, it's got to be still several a day then. Oh, definitely. Uh, anywhere from uh, 10 a day uh, on a really good day, 15, 18. Now, okay, that, that's stunning to me. Um, are you, is this your only, is this your assignment? Are you driving around looking for this or is this just on your patrol that you happen to be seeing these? Um, I'm, I'm involved in a unit known as uh, the District Response Unit. We uh, target high accident locations, uh, and school zones, and uh, we also look after any major accidents. So I am a traffic-orientated unit. Um, cell phones uh, are just uh, one of my specialties. Um, high number of red light infractions, um, and moving violations of any type, uh, but the recognition for the cell phones is uh, because of the push I've put on for it. But what you just said something there that I wasn't even thinking this, but it just blows me away. If one of your areas is cracking down on school zones, of all the places, Norm, that I would think that people would have put their phone down right now because of learning what the risks are, I would have thought that you'd never give out a ticket for distracted driving in a school zone anymore because people would have learned. Uh, quite to the contrary. Uh, if you think of who's in a school zone, uh, parents dropping off kids, the multitasking that they're involved in, they're busy calling work while dropping the kids off. Uh, yeah, we, we get a fair number uh, in school zones. This, I mean, just the number of this is, as I say, it's, it's stunning to me. Are you surprised? I mean, you're there every day. Are you surprised that this is still happening, certainly in the numbers that you're still seeing? Well, uh Scott, when we first started, the fines were $185, and I could get 20 to 25 in a, in a 12-hour shift. Uh, they raised it to $260, um, or 275 somewhere in that, that neighborhood. Uh, it didn't go down any. What did happen was we saw less and less phones up by the ear, and more and more people hiding them down in their laps and texting while they're driving. Um, Which is almost where, worse. Which is, yes, that's a more dangerous way of driving. Um, Halton Region, believing that this uh, is a very serious problem, uh, asked our unit what they could do. We recommended uh, a change of vehicles, and our, our bosses, right up to the chief, uh, decided to uh, invest in some 4x4 pickup trucks. So now we're driving around in Dodge Ram pickup trucks, sitting nice and high, uh, and we actually have the ability to look into a vehicle and see what people are doing uh, with their phones right in their laps. When you said that the police decided to put a, a, a push on this, 
was that for any particular reason? I mean, I know the legislation came in, but is this something that in recent years has become a leading cause of accidents? I mean, it, it, or is this just because we know that it's dangerous? Oh, no, it's, it is definitely one of our leading causes of accidents. It, um, statistics have shown um, accidents caused by distracted drivers have now, causing death, have now surpassed impaired drivers. Also, number of rear-end collisions have just gone through the roof. Uh, the Insurance Bureau of Canada, now I've talked to a few different insurance agents, um, they're, they're raising their rates 20 to 25% upon conviction or second conviction just because of the high cost of people driving distracted and, and causing accidents. So when you show up or when someone shows up now at a rear-end collision, is it, are you just expecting that it's going to be because they were on their phone? Well, first off, you have to have a witness that actually sees them using the phone. And, of course, very few people will admit to using a cell phone and driving into the back end of another vehicle. <laughs> yeah, they, they wouldn't just be a bad driver. They'd be a really stupid witness if they were a person, if they were doing that, if they just admitted, I guess. But what is the rule about that? I got, we got to go to a break in a second here, but what is the rule on that? If there is an accident, do you have the right as a police officer to ask the person to see their phone and see when the texting was done or when a phone call came in? Can you check those things? Uh, no, we can't. Um, there's no legislation in place for that. Uh, what I would say, though, if, if the accident uh, involved a fatality, uh, that's where um, our traffic uh, reconstruction officers would actually go out, get warrants to seize the phone and the phone records uh, just to confirm either it was being used or wasn't being used at the time of the fatality or the accident. Uh, Norm, what... Let's clarify a few things here because there's a lot of people and I am i can't really help them because I'm not really sure myself. We think of distracted driving as, as you described, putting your phone up to your ear or texting in your lap. Is that, is that where distracted driving starts and ends? Uh, the legislation as it stands right now um, and what we've experienced in courts, the courts have established that any time a person is driving a motor vehicle, on a highway, that being a roadway or the actual highway, um, with a handheld communication device in their hand in a live lane, that is distracted driving. It doesn't matter if they're just picking it up to move it, scratch their head with it, or they're texting or hmm. talking on it. It all constitutes the distracted driving. Well, I, I mean, I read something the other day, and I don't know if it's true or not, and I tried to look it up. What about things like, the, there, was a, there was a thing on Facebook that I was reading that says there's a new part, a new addition to this, that eating certain sandwiches, drinking coffee, those kind of things could come into now being included in distracted driving. True or not true? Uh, not true as it stands right now. I know there was talk to include uh all types of distracted driving in the new legislation, but I think we're we're probably a good year away from seeing that. As it stands right now, it is just for the electronic communication devices. But I will say, if somebody is drinking a coffee, eating a hamburger, and they're all over the road, uh, we can lay a charge of careless driving, which carries more demerit points at the present, and it's also a $490 fine. But you restricting basically what you're giving tickets for to phones makes me even more stunned that it's, that there are this many people who simply can't put their phone down even when they're driving. Because I thought some of these would have been for, 
you know, a mother or father turning around to look after their baby in the back seat or spilling a coffee on their lap or whatever. And But it sounds like almost all the tickets you're giving out are for phones. That is correct. Yeah. Wow. My 5,000 are all cell phones. All cell phones. Okay, so what do people say? Because there's nobody now who doesn't know what the rule is. So when you pull someone over and the big black truck comes up behind them and the lights and siren go on, and they have about 20 seconds or so to fabricate some good excuse for why they were doing it, what do they come up with when you get to the window? Well, I love your expression of the fabricating of stories that that uh, yeah, comes into play so often. <laughs> uh, a lot of excuses, of course, they will be. You can see them flipping the phone through their phone, and next thing you know, they pull up a map and they say, "Oh, officer, I was just on GPS." <laughs> well, that in itself is an offense. Also, I had uh, just the other day uh, pulled a lady over, and she said she was talking to Siri to change her music. Uh, again, it's a she's receiving those signals in. So an iPad or anything that's receiving those type of signals, uh, same offense. Uh, we might give a break if they said they were on the Scott Radley show, but uh, <laughs> we'll get to that another time. Yeah. Don't do that. I don't want to be responsible for those people for that. But so wait a sec, Siri. You don't need. Do you need? You do need to touch your phone for Siri, right? You can't just do it all vocally. Well. In this instance, she was on the phone okay. for approximately a kilometer of uh, roadway. So either she was very uh, slow at talking to Siri or she was uh, fabricating the story to me. But if you if the phone was on the seat beside you and you weren't touching it and you can have auditory contact only, you're allowed to have that or you're allowed to have your phone playing something. Oh, yes, you can yeah. have your phone playing something. Uh, but as soon as you, it's in your hand to change the station, uh, that's an offense. Here's another one that I had someone ask me about when I said you were going to be coming on. You can go to places and buy clasps for your dashboard that you can click your phone into. So it's still your cell phone, but it's not in your hand, but you could still then be pressing buttons to get GPS or something. Is that legal? If it's in a mount on the dash and you press a button to turn it on, that's legal. It's when you're actually driving and you're manipulating it. And uh, let's face it, if you're trying to get coordinates on a GPS and you're moving at 60 kilometers per hour and you're staring at the GPS and the buttons, you are distracted. It is an offense. But if it's locked into that clasp on the dashboard and you and the phone rings and you press the green button to answer it, is that distracted driving or because it's locked? into that thing and you're not holding it is that allowed to press to just press the button it's not distracting okay it's it's when you manipulate it and continually or you wrap your hand around it mm. to press a few buttons yeah, that's that's when the law is very strict how often do the people when you pull them over absolutely deny that they had anything to do with their phone do they do that very often uh, probably about one in every 20 okay yeah and uh, is there, there a- hope Sorry, go ahead. They're hoping that they might make me feel like I didn't see what I actually saw. (laughs) And is there ever an excuse that works? Uh, The only time if it's a medical emergency, uh, that's acceptable. Uh, In in an instant, we actually had a doctor phoning the hospital. Uh, He was setting up uh, his open heart surgery of a patient. Uh, I, again gave him the benefit of the doubt. I actually phoned the hospital to confirm what his story was. Um, Not because I didn't believe him, but I've heard so many stories. Uh, But (laughs) once once that was confirmed, that is is a medical emergency. Otherwise, uh, sick kids, 
uh, teachers phoning, doctors phoning. Uh, they're very common excuses, but you have to ask yourself, why don't you just pull over to the side of the road? Mm. Why are you moving in a live lane 50, 60 kilometers an hour with a 3,000-pound piece of metal, you know, uh, your car? Uh, the danger is there. Yeah, no, I, I could, I mean... M- as you say, maybe there's an excuse along the way. Maybe you pull someone over whose leg is lying on the seat beside them or something, and they have to get to the hospital fast. But um, I, I would assume you'd give that person a break. Maybe even call them an ambulance as opposed to a ticket. Oh, but. definitely, <laughs> definitely. Uh, Halton Police Constable Norm Deneau, 5,000 distracted driving tickets. This is a reminder that they are out there, and you will get a ticket. They, you will be found eventually, right, Norm? They will be found uh, eventually. That's right. Let me just make one point. Please, yeah, go ahead. Everybody out there that has a cell phone, they have to ask themselves, as soon as I pick that up, who is worth talking to out there for $490 for the monetary value, you know, the additional insurance costs, and the fact that they could ruin somebody's life by, you know, rear-ending them or, you know, hitting a pedestrian walking across the street. Excellent point. Thanks for making it. Thanks for doing this, and thanks for taking the time tonight. Oh, thanks for having us. That is uh, Halton Constable Norm Deneau. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to get started on this, and and as I say, I want to just reiterate, don't go anywhere for the bottom of the hour, because I have a remarkable, remarkable story that, uh, that you're going to want to stick around for. But equally remarkable right now, as he is every week when we bring him in here, our buddy Bubba O'Neill from CHCH. Sir, how are you today? Yeah, yeah. off the desk, you know. Happy National Coffee Ice Cream Day, by the way. I hope you celebrate it af- appropriately. National what? Coffee Ice Cream Day. There's a very specific day just celebrating National Coffee Ice Cream. Who, who, who has coffee ice cream? Oh, I love coffee ice cream. I could just never find it. Have a coffee instead. And, and dump some vanilla ice cream in it and mix it. You know, or, or that, you know, the Timmy's has got something that's pretty mm. popular. Timmy's has lots of things. Lots of bakeries have stuff I like. You know what I don't like so much right now these days, Bubba? I am struggling with the Blue Jays. And I hear a report today that Mark Shapiro, the guy who is fairly or unfairly, and we'll get into that in a moment, fairly or unfairly, arguably the most despised sports executive in the greater Southern Ontario region, maybe in all of Canada, that he may actually be getting a job as the head of the New York Mets, and on Twitter people are losing their minds with excitement at this, that this could actually be happening. Is it fair the hate that Mark Shapiro and Ross Atkins running the Jays get? I don't think it's fair. I don't think it has been fair since the very beginning. I mean, these guys came in there and replaced, you know, obviously Ross Atkins was hired by Mark Shapiro, so he came in there in in basically a no-win situation. The Blue Jays had just gone to the playoffs for the first time in, you know, I think 27, 27 years, I believe it was. Um, Something like that, yeah. You know, and Alex Anthopoulos, the popular Canadian general manager, had parted ways, and... Uh, Shapiro was going to set up the executive staff like most teams in in, in um, Major League Baseball, um, and it must be said that Alex Anthopoulos basically had free reign of the franchise due to the ownership at the time, and they ran the stru- they structured the management very differently than most teams in Major League Baseball. So when Shapiro came in here and you know wanted to set things up like how they were in Cleveland, 
he was not going to demote Alex Anthopoulos, but name him just a general manager in name, um, which is the way it goes for most teams in baseball. And of course, Alex didn't like that. Wanted to be, you know, kind of, you know, do what he wanted, and he left, and you know, went to the Dodgers, and now he's with Atlanta. So that's the way it goes. I mean, understand we've had we see these uh, kind of power struggles in terms of corporate, you know, name names all the time. Um, how do you replace that guy? You know, so you're the next guy. After, it's like being. It's like being the next heavyweight champion after Muhammad Ali. It's like Larry Holmes will never get the respect of being, you know, the the great champion that he was because he followed Muhammad Ali. And I agree with your, I agree with the assessment about that. That you know, it happens that finally you have a winning team. You go and you make all these trades. And by the way. The interesting thing when they talk about cleaning out the farm system that that Anthopoulos did and how he left them the cupboards bare, there is not one player that Anthopoulos traded away, one prospect who has turned out to be a star. Just saying that, but nonetheless, but you have this this situation where Shapiro comes in, and you're right. The, the comparison to Larry Holmes, Muhammad Ali, is a fair comparison. But what I've never understood is it seems as though Shapiro came in here relishing almost the villain role. It seems like he almost at times went out of his way to become the bad guy rather than to try to somehow come across as a guy the fans could like. And and maybe I'm misunderstanding, but boy, it seems like a lot of people take that point of view that he, 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 he did very little to try and smooth waters and be a likable guy. And that's hurt him. You know, and and I'll be honest with you, I, I I respectfully disagree. I saw a special with him. You know, Sportsnet obviously the carrier for Blue Jays baseball. They were really hot and you know wanted to introduce this guy, and they actually did a half an hour special on his history. And um, and one of the questions that was posed to him is that you know you are kind of one of the the more hated men in Toronto. You know, in, in terms of Toronto sports executives right now, and and it really did upset him. And he had talked about stories about him. And his wife and his kids and his kids getting all kinds of hassles and stuff like that because of, you know, the situation that he was thrown in and that, you know, he took a job that, you know, replaced a, you know, very real popular Canadian. And I think he's been fairly untreated pretty much for the most part, quite honestly. Um, he took over what was left for him and what was left for him was not a heck of a lot. Alex Anthopoulos, in this final month, uh, two months of his basically his employment with the Blue Jays, you know, went Joker's wild. I mean, he gave away everything for a run at the playoffs, and it was wonderful. They got to, they got within, you know, a run of going to the World Series one year, and then when Anthopoulos left, they had one more, you know, great year of going to the playoffs, and the team was revived like it hasn't been in, like I said, twenty five years. Uh, now they are saddled with the sort of tough job, and no one likes to be that guy who has to be to rebuild a franchise. No one like it, it, you can. It's hard to be a general manager or an executive of a team that's you know again tasted success, and now they've gone as far as they can, and now they have to rebuild. Uh, I think a lot of people should Jays fans should give this guy credit because I think their turnaround is going to be much quicker than you know many other teams in Major League Baseball. Um, because of the farm system that has been built. So I think it's an unfair situation for, for both of those guys, Ross Atkins and Mark Shapiro. I mean, they, they've gone in there and just tried to do the best job they can. And after, you know, people hating you and criticizing you, what else are you supposed to be do? I mean, your job is to turn around the, the, the baseball team, and I think they're doing the best they can right now. I, I think the other thing about it that really, really seems to rankle people around here about them 
is how many trades it seems or people have left any how many how many connections there still seem to be with Cleveland and now you're looking and you see all these former Jay stars going to Cleveland it's a powerhouse and the Jays looking like a skeleton and people are saying what are these guys like the Manchurian candidate or they did were they <laughs> sent here to take all the Jays best pieces and you hear this all the time and of course that's that's a ridiculous statement but again, when you do have your best asset in Josh Donaldson and you only get a player to be named later and it's from your former team, man, it, it, it again, sends messages that just you have to know is going to drive fans bananas. Yeah, well, I, 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 I'm going to be honest here. I, don't, I, I can't blame Shapiro for this one because I think Josh Donaldson is just as much of a villain in this situation as, as it's all been. Uh, I don't know if he wants to be, he wanted to be here. Uh, it's clear and obvious that the team was in a re. It was going towards a rebuild uh, or a retooling situation, which whichever you would prefer. Josh Donaldson's 32 years old, and there's no room for him to be anywhere. He's a third baseman, and you have arguably the greatest prospect third baseman in many many years here. So there's really no reason for him to be here. Unfortunately, his value, and this is where the you know the Jays can't be faulted. His value plummeted because of his numbers and the fact that he can't stay healthy. Now, why he can't stay healthy is something that maybe we'll find out later in terms of, you know, Dawson said there's more to find out about this calf injury than any of us know. But as far as I know, he's played, I think, 34 games this year. So how on earth could the Blue Jays get any value um, and, you know, there was some talk about, you know, why don't you keep him and sign him to a qualify, you know, $17, $18 million qualifying offer uh, next year. Why? There's no reason for it. You're rebuilding the franchise. So, you know what, you got at least something instead of nothing for him, and it's time to move on. You know, and some of the other moves they've made, you know, people have criticized those guys, those twosome for, you know, their handling of the Edwin Encarnacion deal. Well, it turns out what Edwin Encarnacion signed for with Cleveland was less than what the Blue Jays had actually offered him. So they went out and got Kendris Morales, who, you know, some say is, you know, kind of a, you know, I don't know. He's he's kind of a one-dimensional. He's a poor man's Edwin. Uh, yeah, he's a poor man's Edwin. But then you know what? I I encourage every one of our listeners to go look at the stats of Kendris Morales compared to Edwin Encarnacion right now. And Kendris Morales beats him any everywhere. So the and, hatred and it and it less than half the price. So the hatred then for Shapiro and Atkins is it entirely because. It was following Anthopolis, or is it because they now have a half-empty stadium and an old team that's broken down that's only partially their fault by the parts that they have, or is it is it something else? Is there something else that would explain why they seem to be so, not universally, but pretty close, reviled? Well, they're reviled because the team isn't winning right now. That's I mean, hey, wins and losses, I guess two years ago when they still went to the playoffs and Shapiro and Atkins were running the team, uh, there wasn't any backlash. The truth is, the team got old. Second oldest team in the major league in Major League Baseball when they started the season this year. Uh, so many injuries. It sounds like. I mean, here here we go again. Uh, Marcus Stroman. We just got a, a news today that he is going to miss his neck after get starting what two games. He's going to miss his next start on Sunday, and it's quite possibly you might as well sit him for the rest of the season with a finger blister issue. So it's, it's injuries like that that's gone on all season long with your key players, your key contributors. I think 
Justin Smoke has been the only one that's been truly healthy all season long. Um, Devin Travis is a guy that's gone through injury problems. So all your starting players are either broke, have been broken down this year or aren't producing at the level that they're normally used to. That's not management's fault. Um, when, if they were winning... No one would be hating on those guys, in my opinion. And you're right. I, I, as I said earlier, following Alex Anthopoulos and you know his act and what he did and when he went for it all out there and put all the cards on the table. But remember, when you put all your cards on the table and you go with guys, get guys like Martin, Tulowitzki, uh, David Price, there's a price to be paid. And it didn't, you didn't feel it right away, but you knew, or Alex knew, you're going to feel it later down, down the line. Yeah, I, you know, it's so funny because it, it, it's... The feeling, everyone remembers what it was like in 2015. And I've talked about this before in the show. I think I've talked about it with you that you would, every day, you would say, Did you see the game? And you didn't have to say what game. It was just, you knew exactly what everybody was talking about when that run from the end of July was going on that year because it was absolutely all encompassing. I mean, to me, it's very much pre reminiscent. If the Leafs actually turn out to be any good or anything like we hear they could be. That's going to be the same thing this year with the Leafs, but it was it, it was such a memorable time that to come in here to leave and, and look, literally everything has conspired against uh, Shapiro and Atkins because they were in Cleveland when Cleveland stunk. They leave Cleveland to come here. Cleveland all of a sudden gets really good, and the Jays go into the pooper, and so people are drawing lines saying, "Well, look, I mean, clearly it's them." Uh, we'll see. We'll but, see. But, but, but Scott, why won't we, and you're and you're so right. Those guys left, and Cleveland's good. So how did the team get good? They built that. They those guys, those guys Shapiro built what you're seeing in Cleveland right now. They've also built uh, what man, Major League Baseball right now are saying is you know the second best group of prospects in Major League Baseball right now. So people got to be patient. Like you can't be good forever. You know, unless you're the Yankees or Boston Red Sox that are going to spend money, so much money that you can rebuild in a year or two. Um, and the Jays aren't going to do that. Rogers Communications is not, I mean, even though they spend, I believe, I think they're in the top 10 for spending for the last 10 years, quite honestly, which is unbelievable to believe, but it's true. But they're not going to spend as much money as the Yankees and Red Sox will. They never will. The one thing that I will give absolutely, without question, that they get crap for, that Atkins and Shapiro have been pooped on for, that I will give them credit for, is not calling Vlad Guerrero Jr. up this year. There have been a lot of people who say, come on, bring them up, let the fans see him, give the fans something, throw them a bone nope, here. No, nope, And they've nope, said, and they have nope. refused to do that. And I've, this is the, this is one area where I've said, no, no, these guys have it right. You don't bring a guy up in a lost season. Exactly. With a month and a half left that will cost you a year of his service on his contract, that you would lose him a year earlier when you might actually then be a competitive team. That would be boneheaded. So I give them full marks for that decision. There is really, really no need for it. I mean, let, what's the rush? There's no rush here. Well, the rush is that people want something. They just want something because it's so bad right now. Yeah, there's nine players on the baseball diamond plus a pitching staff. So if, if, if Vladdy Guerrero Jr. is out there and, you know, Marcus Stroman and, and Aaron Sanchez are struggling with blisters on their fingers, what difference does it make? I'm with you. No, in this one, I think they absolutely got it right. There's some things that you, you look at and you wonder about, and I have my, 
thoughts about, but this one I say no. You, people who are criticizing them for this are just criticizing them because they're Shapiro and Atkins. They're not thinking through the logic of this one. If they were in a pennant race right now and they didn't bring him up to buy him an extra year of service, then they'd be out of their mind. But they're not. They're, 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 right now, you would simply be throwing away a good year of him in his approaching prime, which well, would be stupid. Well, you have to have some type of financial responsibility, and I think that's, that goes in, in, you know, in stride with, with that, uh, him not being called up. And you know what? If you want to go see him, or, I mean, it's done now. You can go to Arizona. Go, I mean, that's what I say. He's going to the Arizona Fall League along with, I think, uh, six prospects are actually going to that. And three of them, and three of them are amongst the top, the top 100 in Major League Baseball. Yeah, that could be a good team. The Arizona Fall League, which generally is, well, it's got some players, but a lot of scrubs. He, he might hit 800 in that league. Again, it's a top development league. Apparently 20 of the top 100 are in there, and the Blue Jays have three of those 20 playing in this series. So, you know, what Alex Anthopoulos did was for the now, and it hit it, it turned a 500 team into a team that went to the playoffs, and like I said, we're one out away basically from possibly going to a World Series. And it went for one more year, and that's it. And ever since then, they've now they've been bypassed by the Yankees and Red Sox, as expected, who you know are much better teams all around the board. But now it's time to retool, and what they have going with some of the prospects they have. Uh, this is a team that could be good for a long time. And you know what will happen then? Mark Shapiro will go to the Mets, and all of a sudden the Jays will start to be better once he leaves, and the Mets will go down the toilet, and everyone will say, see, three teams in a row he's gone to and destroyed. Well, I think the Mets are already t- have already tanked. Well, they're awful. There, there's, unless you're Baltimore, there's always still room to go further. Yeah, well, not much, Jays, not the, much. The Jays just got swept by Baltimore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good reminder, too. Bubba O'Neill, always love having you on. Thanks for doing this tonight. Uh, good, thanks for having me. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. This day in 1972, if you are of a certain vintage, you will remember watching the coverage on TV. If you're not... That old, you certainly have heard about this over the years. You are aware of this. It was at the Munich Olympics. Uh, You know the story. Palestinian terrorists broke into the athletes' village and they abducted and then killed 11 members, uh, athletes and support staff coaches of the Israeli Olympic team right in the village. Now, there is a very interesting Hamilton connection to this story. And over the years, since I heard this for the first time, and I learned about it probably four years ago when my next guest was inducted into the Hamilton Sports Hall of Fame, I have told people a number of times, this is in the top three, maybe higher than that, as far as compelling Hamilton stories that I've ever heard. Stories that, not not funny, there's nothing funny about this, but compelling stories of local people that have told me about over the years. And I've talked to a lot of athletes and very few will rise to this level. Of the man at the center of this story, the local guy who we're going to talk to, his name is David Hart. He joins me now. David, thanks for doing this today. Hi, Scott. How are you? I'm doing great, thank you. And I know this is a difficult story, but let's go back. You were in Munich in 1972. Tell the story. Why were you in Munich? Uh, Well, it was the first time that a Canadian uh, men's water polo team had qualified for the Olympic Games. Uh, we had five uh, Hamilton uh, players on that team in 1972, and that was our first opportunity to uh, 
you know, to set, get the Canadian water polo tradition moving forward. So we were there with our eyes wide open and uh, just amazed at uh, the opportunity of going to the Munich Games. You, you were a water polo star. Uh, had you always played water polo growing up? Had this been the thing you'd done since you were a kid? Well, I joined uh, the, like a lot of kids that were interested in aquatics, I joined the Hamilton Aquatic Club that was that was uh, run by the, the late, uh, great Jimmy Thompson. Um, his son, Robert Thompson, uh, was also a member of that team in 72. I started as a swimmer, and, and then I, I played high school water polo in Hamilton for Delta, Sir Winston Churchill. And uh, the club, the Hamilton Club was one of the, the top uh, clubs in the country, so one thing led to another, and the next thing you know, I'm there. I am representing my country. And today, if you are if you're coming up in one of the sports that is played at the Olympics, the Olympics are a huge pinnacle, top of the hill dream. I mean, if you're a female hockey player or a you know pick your, whatever sport, the Olympics are the thing that you dream of and aspire to. Was that the case in 1972? Was that similar? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I was a young 20 year old kid. I I, I remember watching, I think the very first Olympics I ever saw was on, on television in 1960 from Rome. And from that day on, I was just mesmerized at the thought of, uh, you know, perhaps uh, uh, competing for Canada one day. So I was a, I was a young, naive, 20-year-old uh, 20, 20 kid, uh, just, uh, you know, uh, beyond, uh, beyond ecstatic in going to those games. So when you get there and you get you, you get to finally start looking around, t- tell me about the Athletes' Village. What I mean, was the experience, before you even get in the water, was the experience of the Olympics what you thought it would be? Well, I didn't really know what to, what to expect, but when we, I mean, I, I knew very, uh, you know, I knew my history about the Olympic Games, and I was quite familiar with the 1936 Berlin Games, which, um, you know, uh, lives in infamy as the Nazi Olympics, and the German people, from the very outset, from the moment the plane touched down in Munich, uh, you could tell that the the German people um, uh, were they wanted to really erase the memory of that of that Olympic Games, and they had gone just absolutely over the top to try to welcome everybody and 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 really you know change perhaps forever the um, you know that. Uh, the image of the the terrible uh, 36 Olympic Games. So by September the 5th, which was, again, 1972, this day in 1972, uh, the Games were more than well underway. They were getting closer to the end than they were to the beginning at this point. Had you competed already? Yeah, uh, we were, you know, we were in against the big boys. Uh, we were we were uh, knocked out of the, um, the medal rounds, um, and so we were done um, by the... By the time of the um, the night, that infamous night of the fourth, which which led into the morning of the fifth. So, we yes, we were done. And um, as it turned out, that night, I'm not sure who people will remember, but that was the night of the very first game of the uh, the great series between Canada and the Soviet Union in the, hockey. The Summit Series. Yeah, the Summit Series. So it was the very first game. We we went outside the uh, village that night to go to the Canadian Media Center. There was a whole. There was about thirty or forty of us, perhaps, perhaps even more, that went to the media center to watch the game. And of course, uh, you know that, that was the unbelievable. Well, at least it seemed that at the time it seemed unbelievable that we could have lost that game to the Soviet Union. 
And um, because of a six-hour delay, uh, you know, the game finished at about 3.45, uh, just, you know, a little before 4 a.m. in the morning. And so, uh, you know, various groups of Canadian athletes, uh, I was with uh, some of my water polo teammates, Robert Thompson, Jack Goldie, Rick Pugliese, Bill Vanderpool. We were we were heading back uh, to the village, and we just didn't want to go all the way around. Uh, there was a, about a six-foot of a chain link fence but there was no barbed wire i mean this was another thing the german the, the security around the village was very relaxed people were hopping over the fences nobody you know that wasn't an uncommon thing to do um uh, certainly that well into the games and um so there we were at four o'clock in the morning um hopping over the back fence uh which was really close to the section where our residents and the Israeli residents, where we were adjacent to each other. You were close to them. Where we were beside each other in the far corner. So the, the Canadian residence was the furthest you could go into the corner and then sort of block the next one to get out of that little corner was the Israeli one. So we were kind of actually blocked in into the corner by the Israeli residents. We hopped the fence with other athletes um, uh, at 4 o'clock in the morning Everybody was helping everybody. There were, you know, gym bags, this, that, the other thing. And as it turned out, uh, we hopped the fence with the uh, with with the terrorists. We didn't know that. Uh, we hopped the fence, walked right past the door, 31 Connolly Strasse. Anybody that knows anything about the terrorist attack will know what 31 Connolly Strasse is. It's 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 the residence uh, address for the Israeli. Um, athletes and staff uh, we walked past there uh, and couldn't have been more than three or four minutes till we got to our room and lied down uh, and all of a sudden bang 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 so we heard the, what we thought were firecrackers and one of the guys said no that's a gun that's not a firecracker and of course you know we were kind of laughing and, and, and saying that's not possible there's no i mean come on, that's ridiculous. There's, there's not a gun. And so we went to bed uh, and about two hours, three hours later, our manager came running into the room and uh, told us uh, there were terrorists in the, in, in uh, the residence beside us and uh, all hell had broken loose in the, um, in the village. How did you then put two and two together to realize that the guys who were climbing the fence with you with their duffel bags were not actually athletes, but were the Palestinian terrorists. Well, the Time magazine reported that within hours, Time magazine uh, reported that um, through sources, I guess they had that uh, the the terrorists had hopped the back fence at that time uh, to get into the residence, and it 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 it, it perfectly matched our um, our statement of the. Of, of the fence, and uh, we did see athletes dressed in various uniforms and there were gym bags, and we were the ones that went over the fence with them. And so, when you hear that the first time, and do you remember where you were when you when you heard that, or when you realized that? Before um, we were interviewed uh, hours later on television, there's a there's a clip on YouTube actually. If you if you if you um, if you Search it. Just the Munich massacre in 1972. Um, there's a there's a CBC account about 
eight or ten minutes long in which um, Robert Thompson and I are interviewed about the incident and the the fact that we we realized we were the ones that had hopped the fence. So what goes through your mind when it suddenly dawns on you that you were there and, and completely innocently, completely not knowing this? I mean, there was nothing malicious. You had no idea who they were, but you may have even helped them throw their duffel bags that probably had guns in them. What, what goes through your mind when you realize that? I think we're in shock. I, mean, I, I didn't really register. David, David, look, if I can cut you for a second, just because we've got a bad connection, if you can just move a little bit, because I think we're getting a bad spot with your cell phone where you're breaking up. Okay, I'll try and get to her. Can you hear me better now? Uh, no, keep moving. I'll tell you. All right, will do. I'll tell you when we can hear you, because it just, it's just a bad connection right now. Okay, how about that? No, you know what? We'll, we'll give you a call right back. All right, Will's going to give you a shout right back just to try and get a better line here because I, I want to hear this. It's, a, it's an unbelievable spot. So you've got this guy who's a Hamilton water polo star who's gone to the Olympics. He's in Munich, goes to watch the Summit Series, which actually happened to be the same night, and is coming back to the Athletes' Village and ends up climbing the fence with the Palestinian terrorists. Of course, no idea who they were, no idea they were going to be terrorists, no idea there was going to be a terrorist attack, nothing like that. Ends up helping them get over the fence and they end up in the athlete's village. Uh, David, we've got you back now. What, what was going through your mind when you realized that's who they were? Well, you know, I, we weren't really uh, thinking about that, um, Scott, because throughout the entire, um, the, 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 the subsequent hours, we, the, the SWAT team was on our, our building. So we were constantly being told, um, through all those various negotiations, at one point they were, the terrorists were going to blow up our building because there were sharpshooters on it. So we were really kind of worried about our own safety. So what kind of role we had played or not played wasn't really foremost in our mind. And and so it was only really later, I think, that you know that what what really happened um, kind of started to sink in a little bit and. Does it weigh on you over the years? I mean, that's it's a number of years now. Obviously, o- over the years, did it become something that bothered you? Um, I, I didn't realize it till about um, uh, almost a quarter of a century later. Um, the other thing that really um, the tra- the other trauma associated with it was that when the negotiations finally took place, where the terrorists were going to uh, get a plane uh, for them at the airport um, and, and we're going to be transported by helicopter to the airport. We watched the, the, um, the drama of the, of the athletes come out. Uh, they were tied like cattle, um, you know, one to the other. And we watched the entire episode from about, uh, you know, I don't know, probably 30 meters or something like that away in, in, in the, right in the village. Um, and then of course, uh, there was the drama of, uh, we, the news later we got, uh, about an hour or so later was that they had saved all the athletes. Uh, that was on national German television and it spread throughout the village. And then about a half hour later, the, the reality had, you know, sunk in that, that, that wasn't the case and that all, all the uh, athletes were dead. Um, you know, it was it was really something. I think I just I just numbed myself against it. I, I couldn't process it. I I wasn't even able to go to the um, the memorial service. I you know I had 
I, I really didn't know. I, like, I, I think people that were involved in that were just kind of numb. It was only really later, about a quarter century later, I was actually speaking at a, in 1996. I got asked to go to my my daughter's school to speak about the Olympic Games. And uh, while I was there, I got asked a question uh, by a young student about Munich. And, and in the middle of my explanation, I kind of fell apart in, you know, in front of a, a group of about 40 or 50 kids. And it completely caught me off guard. And so I had I had a, a difficulty dealing with that situation, um, even as recently as 2012 when CBC did the 40th anniversary uh, a national documentary. I, I I couldn't talk. I kind of couldn't finish my sentences. Um, but I'm okay now, and I think I it was a, the process of really coming to terms with what happened and and perhaps feeling some guilt about you know the the accidental role we played in that. But I'm okay now. I'm I'm able to talk about it now. Well, yeah, and I mean, I, I wondered that. I wondered if uh, somewhere along the way, even though it was completely inadvertent, if you do blame yourself in some way, although there was no way you could have known, but I wonder if you carried that. Yeah, well, to be, you know, honestly, uh, one of the things I said in, in my interview in 2012 was I was 20 and I had looked so much forward to that Olympic Games. And in a sense, I think I was upset that that, you know, in a really odd way uh, that, that the games were ruined by this. I mean, and what a terrible thing to, to think or say, you know, but I mean, that, I'm being honest. That's how I think I felt that way. And, and uh, it, it was really only later that, 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 um, that sort of un- terrible marriage of a, of a dream and a nightmare coming together in one place and um, so, yeah, I did. I, I did. I realized that I probably had felt guilt that, um, A, that we had been um, uh, unwilling participants in, in the sense of, you know, helping people get over the fence. And, and then secondly, not going to the memorial service and. It, so, it's, yeah, yeah it's, it's an amazing story. I, we unfortunately have to go. We're short on time. But yeah. just one more thing. Uh, a number of years ago, probably five, six, seven, maybe ten, I don't know now, years ago, Steven Spielberg had a movie that came out called Munich, which was about this. Did you watch that? Yeah, yeah I did. Um, I didn't like the, he didn't get the um, the beginning uh, part of the story correct. Um, but, you know, I guess he took artistic license. But uh, he didn't show uh, the athletes, the, the terrorists hopping the fence with other athletes. Was that a relief anyway. to you? Uh, no, you know, not really. It was just uh, if you're going to do something, I think you have to get the, the facts right. I, I, not, that, not that I want any, you know, any fame or fortune out of that kind of a <laughs> terrible thing. But, um, you know, it just um, that, w- that was my first thought was that when you really were in the, in, in the incident and you see it and you say, well, no, that's not how it, ha- that's not how it happened. David Hart, he is a member of Hamilton Sports Hall of Fame, a well-deserved member of Hamilton Sports Hall of Fame, and uh, a man with an unbelievable story. Sir, I really appreciate you taking time to talk about it tonight. Thank you, Scott. I, um, I, I didn't mind doing it. Thank you. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.